to Learning Now Radio, bringing you the best news, views, and interviews from the team that brings you Learning Now TV. This is Learning Now Radio. So on this edition of Learning Now Radio, I'm delighted to invite back for our first time, in fact, Don, second guest, second time guest. So you're um, honoured. Well, honored. yeah, exactly. Honoured or just very good. You can choose which of those that you'd like to go with. Um, but as you can guess, I'm speaking to Donald Taylor, chairman of the LPI and chairman of the Learning Technologies Conference. And of course, author. And in fact, last time we spoke, Don, we were talking about your um, book, uh, Webinar Master. But today we're talking about your latest book, Learning Technologies in the Workplace. So, Don, thank you so much for spending the time to talk to me. Delighted to be here, Lisa. So my first question is a really short one. Why now? I think I'd turn that on its head and say, why on earth hasn't this book been written before? We've had e-learning stroke digital learning since at least 1999 and arguably before that, but that was when the term e-learning was coined. Why on earth has nobody written a book called Learning Technologies in the Workplace beforehand? It's uh, There's a desperate need for it. So the answer is it was overdue. That's why. And how had you sort of picked up on that with your work that you do? Because you work globally and working as part of a professional body, working as part of a an international conference. Although you're absolutely right, the book hasn't been written yet. What kind of conversations were happening that made you think, look, somebody really must write this book because I'm being asked about this, or I'm needing to make connections in this space, or I can see people are struggling with these sorts of questions? What happens time and again is that, or what happened time and again, is that I was being coming up against the same questions and seeing the same things happening. I'm privileged to see a lot of great case studies, and that's wonderful. But very often the case studies were traveling the same ground, and very often the issues that people were raising were the same. And the issues are won't surprise you, things like how do I get people to buy into my learning, uh, for example, which in itself carries a whole lot of issues around comprehension of the role of learning development in the workplace and in general and more specifically, what on earth can I do to make sure that if I'm going to carry out some form of learning technology implementation, it goes well. I was aware in short that there were things being repeated again and again, which I hope that if I could draw out the characteristics of what made a good learning technologies implementation would not make every implementation in the future fail safe, but at least raise the bar and reduce the risk of people having a bad experience in the future. And one of the things that you talk about later in the book is essentially that people focus. Um, And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you before we kind of delve down into it is early on in the book, you talk about essentially the kind of juxtaposition of traditional models of learning versus a more collaborative, open, self-directed approach to learning. And it's very much dovetails, you know, with the flatter organization and people taking ownership. But it made me think of an experience I had some years ago, mind you, but with Cisco, because you mentioned Cisco. And I was asked to um, train a number of community facilitators so they could develop a more collaborative way for their consultants to share knowledge and work together. 
And what I found really interesting there, given that Cisco were way ahead uh, of most organizations I'd ever worked with in terms of tools to support virtual working, um, tools to support telepresence, um, tools to support sharing of knowledge online, there was still a cultural barrier. And you, you talk about also that, that kind of, um, you know, we have got generations, uh, you and I included, of going through education in that classroom focus. Um, and our traditional model of education is still shaped by our experience of formal education when we're younger. And, and sadly, I mean, things like SATs at the moment seem to be um, uh, it, taking that even further. And it's still a very traditional classroom-based teacher-focused model. Are people ready for a more collaborative, open environment in which learning technology plays a part and they are co-owners? Are people really ready for it? That's a huge question, Lisa. How long have we got on this podcast? I mean, we could be talking, this could run for hours, couldn't it? That's a, a massive Fantastic. Question. Okay, so this is part one <laughs> of a 20-part series with Don and Lisa on Are People oh, Ready? Oh, my Lord. If anybody gets through to part 20, I will totally buy them whiskey when we next meet because they will deserve it. So are people ready for it? Listen, let's put the idea of being collaborative just to one side for the second. I think that there's there are huge blockers between where we are now and the optimal use of learning technology in the workplace, however it is used, whether it is used for collaborative learning or indeed almost anything else. And the reason is this thing which I call the schoolroom assumption. Now, I want to make it quite clear. I'm not having a go at classes. I'm not having a go at contemporary training practice. I'm not having a go at teachers. But the fact is, and it may be that, um, I'm not going to comment on it, it may be that in schools the best way of teaching people is in classes of 30. I'm not going to comment on that. But the fact is that we all go through that process regardless of age, gender, class. We all go through a process where between the ages of 5 and roughly 16 to perhaps 20-something, so at least 10 years and probably 15 years of our lives, we are experiencing learning in a particular way. Now, if you wanted to indoctrinate an entire nation, that's what you would do. You would make them all do the same thing for 10 years, 10 formative years of their life. What happens then is people go to work and the natural assumption is that whatever you might do elsewhere in your life, somehow learning is training, requires a course, requires possibly a classroom. Now, we've, we've sort of stepped away from it requiring a classroom, even though that's used in probably by 70% of organizations still as the main form of delivery. Uh, but we still have this uh, obsession with the idea of the course being the main delivery mechanism. Uh, and at the front end of that chain of causality is the idea that there's a performance problem which leads into all this cascading down. So you have performance problem, end up needing a course. Well, we know that that is one answer, but it's not by any means the only answer, and it may not be the best answer most of the time. In fact, I'd argue it isn't. So I think regardless of whether it's social learning, uh, people sharing and being co-creators and whatever, as you originally said, Lisa, the real question for me is how do we shift people out of this assumption that something's wrong, I need a course? Because that for me is the crucial stumbling block between anybody and a good learning technologies implementation, which is that managers, 
individuals, executives will come to the learning development department with the idea that they know the answer. Something's wrong. The answer is, of course, guys, most of the time it isn't. And as learning development professionals, it's my job to point out to you that uh, we can do something better for you. Let me show you what it is. Or better still, let me put you in an environment where you can find it for yourself. So uh, I think uh, that's a very long answer to a very long question, Lisa. But the, for me, the answer is that there is a, a fundamental block to good implementations, which is the quite understandable attitude of everybody in the organization that we work with, which is that a course is going to be the answer. And that's what we have to break down first before we go anywhere else, like, oh, and it could be social, for example. So does that make sense as an answer? It does. And the reason why I raise it is what it got me thinking after reading that section in the book is that there's so much discourse at the moment about learning and development. Well, in fact, it's not at the moment. It's been going on for years. Learning and development, being at the top table, being influencers, just demonstrating more business acumen, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's still this perhaps, uh, I don't know if it's a lack of global self-esteem from the learning profession thinking, but we can't do that. We can't have those sorts of conversations. However, it made me really think about the fact that like you said, if, you, if you're going for that traditional model, think about something like accountancy. Accountancy had an incredibly traditional model of the way that it um, had to report back financials to the board. But yep. then with the development of the balanced scorecard, that was an explicit move to say, actually, a lot of this is about intangible assets, about building human capital. And it, it kind of got me thinking, look, guys, if accountants can do it... <laughs> then we can do this. But it's finding that language to describe exactly as you as you mentioned in the book. It's about you know, there is an increase in spend. Deloitte talked about the fact that digital learning is the, I think it's the number two topic for boards and, and HR. People want to understand, uh, understand how it will deliver them value. But we have to have confidence in the way that we demonstrate the value that learning technology will bring, that it's not a direct A-B relationship, that there are intangibles around it. And I, and I wondered um, what your thoughts on that were in terms of, OK, well, if you're going to do a successful learning and development, um, learning technologies implementation, what does good look like? What sorts of things would we see changing in our organisations? Everything you say makes sense. I would take a step back from the value piece, although that's an important part of it, and say, what drives that ability to have influence, to be seen not as a fulfillment house, but as a valuable partner? I'm not saying necessarily we have to have a seat on the board, but that the internal learning and development expertise is seen as being a vital contributor to the business. What underpins that is the ability to do our job, as you say, well in terms of the business understands. So in the book, I outline four characteristics that make up a successful implementation, or rather that make up the teams that carry out successful implementations. Uh, I'm not saying you don't need to have a process. Of course you do. And I outline one possible process for carrying out an implementation. But the danger of the process is that it's seen as being an IKEA uh, flat pack assembly plan. And if you follow it from instruction one to instruction 15, you'll end up with a chest of drawers. Every implementation is different. The context is vital, which is why I only devote one chapter to the process and four chapters to these characteristics that make up successful implementations. So successful implementations have teams which exhibit a clear understanding of the aim of what they're doing, 
to have a people focus, to have a wider perspective. And underpinning all that, they have the right attitude. Attitude doesn't mean in-your-face attitude. It means that they are pragmatic and able to make tough decisions. a really very poor onboarding program and completely redoing onboarding so that it became something which had over a million hits where uh, over the course of three plus years and where Nick reckoned in the end that over half the people at BP, not all people onboarding, but over half the people at BP had seen some part of the program. Why? Because it was valuable to them. Now, to do that, he used a completely different process to creating the materials required, getting people on board, having the stakeholders utterly engaged, testing it in an iterative way along the line, rolling it out, getting people on board to use it. The upshot was that having been recruited to, as he puts it, sit in the corner and mind the LMS, he became somebody who was sought after by other people in BP, managers, who came to him and said, look, I've seen what you've done here. I can see that it's working. Can I have some of that, please? Here's the key thing. You talked about value, Lisa. There was no ROI on this program. There was nobody able to sit down and say, even, as you would hope with an onboarding program, we can see the time to competency is reduced from eight weeks to seven weeks, for example. Why? Because when you have thousands of people joining the organization, worldwide, it's impossible to carry out that sort of calculation anyway. And it's particularly impossible to carry it out when there are so many other factors involved. So the managers weren't coming along saying, I can see there's a value here in money terms, but they were saying, I can see that people are doing their jobs more competently faster. And that's enough for me. In other words, they knew that Nick was an expert in his job. He was doing it differently. He'd brought value and they wanted some of it. So a lot of the time we talk about, I'm coming right back to your initial question about value here. A lot of the time we talk about the expression of value being important, and of course it is. But it has to be expressed in the terms that the business sets. In this case, the business was saying very clearly, we just want people to be confident workers, not to leave us, and to do their jobs a, a bit better, a bit faster. And Nick delivered. What I found very interesting, actually, when you talk about APA, so aim, people focus, perspective and attitude, is the thing that got me very interested. And I actually found quite invigorating here because you mentioned the word in your last answer about confidence and, and what confidence is born of. And I said we could, we could discuss that at length as well. But <laughs> the people focus part of it, um, I think a lot of and I'm sorry if I'm talking out of turn for all you learning and development professionals out there, but a people focus suddenly gives it a softer edge that there'll be a bit of rolling of eyes or here's L&D worrying about the people again when I've got stuff to deliver. We're shoehorning that people stuff in again. And I think that that is sometimes a bit of a self-imposed blocker because if you think of the concept of something like Airbnb, Airbnb exists through identifying a people problem and it evolves through people feedback and monitoring human behavior. 
So it's driven by a people need. It's then underpinned by some really good technology that, that works very, very well. Um, but it is a transaction amongst people that really makes it work. That's a business making a lot of money. But um, I, I think it's having the confidence to understand that if you can talk about, as you've, as you've said, talk about a business challenge in a way that is, is the conversation that's happening in the organisation and that you can help by asking good questions and understanding what the drivers are and suggesting solutions, I think, and I'm sure that Nick would agree with this, is that part of it is also hypothesis testing. It's trying out this area of technology, piloting it, iter- being iterative, moving back, deciding what you've got to change, that there is no shame it's an absolute flag that you should fly that this needs a people focus the very last word in the book is people that's quite deliberate um it's a bit like um it's a focus of the book it's a focus of the book because people make something work or they can destroy it. Andy Buller from Hitachi has a great quote on this. It says something like, uh, you can do anything with technology, but people can stop you doing just about everything. And that is the nub of it. If you, it, So when I say people focus is crucial, it's not just the touchy-feely, yeah, we're helping people do better. We're helping organizations do better uh, because their people can do better. Yes, we are. But if you don't have the people focus in other areas, you're really going to fail. So the, the, the people focus part of this is about who's on your team. It's about who are your stakeholders. It's about who on the vendor side is going to help you with this. And very importantly, it's about who is going to disagree with this, dislike it, be a blocker. And how do you cope with that learn from it and get around it. And the learn from it bit is very important. The soft, touchy-feely bit about people is, I'm coming to help you do a better job. You're going to develop. I'm a nice person. Well, we all like that. And those are not difficult conversations to have. The crucial thing with the learning technologies implementation is to seek out the difficult conversations. Ones where you walk into the room knowing that person is going to give you a hard time. They don't like it. They don't like what you're doing. Ignored or overlooked something. And it's up to us in L&D to do that very difficult, non-eye-rolly bit with people of seeking out the difficult conversations so that we can learn from them. And by the way, with the learning technology implementation, the people who are most likely to trip you up are the people who are against it and who aren't listened to. The people most likely to be your strongest ambassadors are those that you bring on board and who say, you know what, I didn't believe in it, but they proved me wrong. This stuff works you've got to go and do it. So seek out those hard conversations. And actually, the people focus stuff is all about, yes, stakeholder analysis, yes, communications, but also how do you actually have conversations with people? How do you do active listening? And how do you seek out the right people to have a conversation with? So people is crucial, but it's not by any means a soft, touchy-feely thing. It's the nub of the whole conversation about implementation and it's where things are going to go wrong. 
I think also as well, Don, picking up on the fact that obviously you picked up on Nick's story as one of the case studies for the book as well. I think also as well, there is that temptation that it would be nice, wouldn't it be lovely if there was just one piece of technology that would solve all of this? And clearly there isn't. Like you said, it's about questions about understanding where people are, what the burning platforms are, what their, their general behaviours are, what their previous experience is. And it's, it's not really rocket science, but it is a, ge- a genuine inquisitiveness and wanting to know the answers before you go in with the solution. And you made me think about one other question that I had for you, which is a really really naughty question Don it's a really really tricky one it really really is but it was the and you've made me think about it in a slightly different way now was the death of the LMS discuss winky face is how I wrote it in my notebook (laughs) the LMS is uh, has about uh, it's a a four to four and a half billion dollar market internationally according to Burson Uh, according to Fosway Group According to their research, there are something like, um, I think, over 90% of the people they interview are planning to uh, carry on or, or in, increase the use of their uh, LMS in the future. The LMS isn't going anywhere uh, soon. Um, so it's not dead. Uh, in fact, I'm writing a white paper on it at the moment, Lisa, because it's such an important topic. Um, uh, people love to hate the LMS um, because it represents everything they don't like about e-learning. But you know what? It's a tool. Uh, my answer is, yeah, the LMS isn't perfect, but you know what? Find a way to use it that suits what you're trying to achieve and then go on and find other tools to do what you do want to do. It's that simple. In the end, if those other tools become more valuable and more useful, they will grow in usage and the usage of the LMS will drop off. My guess is that LMSs will continue to be there and coming back to Andy Wooler uh, who's got loads of very pragmatic experience with LMSs he talks about the invisible LMS and I believe that's what we're going to end up with we're going to end up with the platform not being the place you go to do your learning which is a phrase I hate but being something in the background that supports learning in a variety of circumstances of course not all of them uh, and sits behind possibly a portal possibly is some a, a, a repository for data which is fed in from a variety of different places and maybe it may end up being more of an administrative tool than something that people working in the organization ever see so the death of the lms has been i think hugely exaggerated uh, is it going to be in the same form as it is as it was in 1999 in 10 years' time, certainly not. It won't even be the same form it is now in 10 years' time uh, because it doesn't need to be and there are good reasons for it changing. But it's not going to go away. Its role will just change. That's my view, Lisa. You may disagree. I completely agree. And there's a challenge here, actually, with you and I agreeing on this. Is that well, that's we, terrible. Thought, well, you said it was, you said it was going to be a cheeky no, question. Are you agreeing? I'm sorry. I am agreeing with you. And I'm, I'm agreeing with you, though, with a caveat of ah. there is a danger that people listening to this will go, well, it's all well and good for Don and Lisa to say this because we have both sat on the vendor side of learning technologies. Yeah. But my counter to that would be my previous role was with France Telecoms, part of Orange, working in communities. And my role, although enabled by technology, my role was 
collaboration and communities. And we had exactly the same issue there, um, regardless of technology, just that, well, people like to learn socially. So if I build a community, of course they will come. And it's the same with the LMS. Well, we've prov- you know, we spent all this money on the LMS. We built it. They didn't come. The LMS is a failure. No, it's exactly the same as communities. It, well, exactly, you know, you've heard this so many times, Don. It's the yeah. point of we never really asked what people needed from this thing. We didn't actually bother to ask the questions. So um, I'm with you. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that the LMS will stay the thing that it is now, but a lot of this is about we don't ask the questions of how people will need to use this. We just do an implementation and assume because we spent a lot of money and an awful lot of time choosing between those vendors, and I took ruddy ages getting that tender together, that of course people will use it. Yeah, it's it all comes down in in the end to guess what people. Um, the idea that the tool is going to solve the issue is 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 of course nonsense. And if we have an LMS, that will help us with some things. If we have social learning, that will help us with other things. And to say that uh, and the LMS isn't helping me with my social learning is a, a bizarre thing to say. It's like saying. My Ferrari is not helping me dig a trench. Well, no, you use your Ferrari for that, and you use your your J whatever it is, your your digger machine for digging a trench. The two are separate tools. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't possibly do social learning through an LMS. I think you probably can. Um, is it the right tool for it? it? It depends on the circumstances. There is no silver bullet. There's no one tool, and the obsession with tools doesn't help us solve a performance problem, which is always going to be a people problem. So let's start with the listening to people and what the issue is, finding out how best we can support learning, if that's the right tool to what it is now. They may be called something else, but the role is definitely there, increasingly so in the future, for a repository of data and other things that helps support people in their learning. I'm picking my words very carefully because what I'm talking about, of course, is a way of creating an environment uh, online and elsewhere in which people are learning without possibly them even knowing about it as a result of making good assumptions and guesses about their current and future behavior based on algorithms and possibly artificial intelligence observing what they're doing. Now, that is the point of the future of, I think, how learning technology will be. And we can talk about that in more detail. It won't necessarily be called an LMS. But guess what? It's going to be a big machine with lots of data in it, helping people learn better. And that is what an LMS is. So one way or the other, the technology side of learning isn't going away. The big technology side of learning isn't going away. In fact, I think its role is only going to increase in importance as time goes by. 
And it actually, it's very timely you should say that because um, there was a tweet yesterday discussing whether the learning development profession generally were just trying to create a business case for themselves. Was all, was all this discourse purely um, driven from an industry that's just trying to justify that it exists? But you said something very interesting there, Don, about the fact that algorithms and AI will be observing and helping us make I'll take that further, helping us make good decisions about the um, solutions or approaches that we have going forward. But it still needs people that are intrinsically interested with understanding how work gets done and how we can make that better. So as much as we have the sort of the death of the LMS, there's also the conversation around the death of L&D. I think they're they're both wrong. Um, it doesn't mean that they, both of them exist in the way that they have already that they have always existed. Um, but they're both incredibly important. If we don't get too dogmatic about the fact that well, an LMS looks like this and a learning professional looks like this. The LMS is just um, we stuck on a bit of code, and that will that we can change the code, we can change the name, and we will. The L and D professional is undoubtedly something that's going to change in the future and quite dramatically. It's going to be a change as dramatic for our profession as the introduction of the steam engine was in the 19th century. For the entirety of human history before 1830, the fastest anyone had ever traveled on land was with a horse. And then suddenly it was possible to travel faster and do entirely different things as a result of the steam engine and the train. And what happened was the entire world, the entire history of how we did land transportation changed as a result of that. Until recently, the only way we've been able to transmit information between people has been through two things, books, and that's a recent invention, and for the entirety of human history, through conversation and the spoken word, which is why it's very difficult to shift this model of teaching being the way learning is, learning happens and knowledge is transferred. Nonetheless, the introduction of extremely fast knowledge sharing of very smart artificial intelligence and algorithms is going to change the way in which we learn in the future. And as a result, the learning development profession is going to have to change dramatically. If your focus now is on producing courses in 10 years time, I'd say that's likely to be a diminishing area of work. There will be some areas in which it's extremely important and highly valued, but the quotidian, the daily churning out of courses will simply not be taking place because it won't need to take place. And that that role of producing bits of packages of information for people to learn from will largely be done by machine. I, 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 I realize this is a whole nother podcast, uh, Lisa. You could do it with me or I could do it with Donald Clark. But I, I have absolutely no doubt this is what's going to happen. And so this is one reason I keep banging on about the need for L&D to get off the, co the course content creation treadmill, because the jobs simply aren't going to be there to justify that in the future. 
that's a particular bandwagon of mine. Sorry, Liz, I went off on one there. What was the question? Well, no, you didn't actually at all, because I think that actually brings us right round to, you know, the, the question that we started with, why now? Why do we write the book? That actually, I think this book, um, you know, in comparison to lots of books that I've read recently, very much, I think, sets the tone for if you do work in learning and development, if you want to continue to work in learning and development and you want to start to get a sense of where you will be going or how you want to um, provide a valuable service to the organisation, and I'm not just saying this to flatter you, Don, because you're on the end of the line, but I think <laughs> that it's very important that you read this book because I think it starts to give you the threads of, and this is these are the conversations I need to be having internally, both with the the, the person that I report to to help them understand how I do want to develop my skills, but also in the way that I connect with the business, because actually this role is going to be very important. Complexity, speed, all the things that, that came with um, the steam engine are also coming at us now. It, it, yes, it's a completely different yep. context, but it is the, the, the speed, the challenge, the change. And having people that can help us orchestrate that and be able to focus our attention are really important and that feels to me like the area that we are going to inherit if we understand how our roles will change and I think your book does a very good job at setting that new sort of tone and agenda. Lisa thank you for that and actually that was in the back of my mind writing it this keen awareness that we are at an inflection point I don't think there's any doubt about it and if as you say uh, the book helps people get a wider perspective on the big picture here and how we need to shift what we're doing in order to be ready, not just to do our jobs now, but also be ready for the future, then I'm very happy. Uh, I'm also hoping, of course, that things move so fast that it gets out of date and Kogan Page have to commission me for another uh, edition in three years' time because that's always a nice thing to do. But in the meantime, please put that glowing review onto Amazon for me. That would be delightful. <laughs> I will do. Of course I will, Don. Well, look, when exactly when the second edition comes out, then we will reconvene and we'll discuss this again, see what the state of the nation is at that point. Um, but, Don, thank you once again so much for speaking to us at Learning Now Radio. It's always delight to speak to you, Lisa. And as I always say, it's the end of a, in this case, a, 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 an interview, but it's never the end of the conversation. So please, uh, if this has sparked something in you, you agree, disagree, want to learn more, please get in touch. I'm Donald H. Taylor on everything, but particularly LinkedIn and Twitter. And Lisa, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, they get in touch with me at, at Lisa Minogue W on Twitter. And Don's absolutely right. I tell you what, it doesn't take much to get him talking. So just ask a really <laughs> cheeky, controversial question and he will not be able to resist. You can't shut him up. OK, that's episode <laughs> two of 20. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Don. Bye. Learning Now Radio. All the best news, reviews and interviews. Well, that's all we have for this episode. I hope you found some useful takeaways to jot down and use back at work. And please remember to share Learning Now Radio with your work colleagues, your Twitter followers and, of course, your Facebook friends. So once again, thank you so much for listening to Learning Now Radio. Please help us to spread the word by subscribing and rating us on iTunes. And Lisa and I look forward to you joining us in two weeks' time.